Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who's leading the change and what are the key skills to learn? How to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0. In episode 60 of the podcast, the topic is reshoring. Our guest is Harry C. Moser, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative. In this conversation, we talk about what reshoring is, why it is important now, what data there is on it, and we find out what the Reshoring Initiative is and what they have accomplished. Lastly, we discuss the implications of reshoring and what the future holds for manufacturing. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Thun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. Harry, how are you? I am great, Trond. It's great to be here. Yeah, I thought we would talk about reshoring. That must be a topic that you touch upon now and then. <laughs> Only about 10 or 20 times a day. <laughs> you have a fascinating background. We were just chatting. It turns out we have uh, worked in the same place. You, you, you've been a liaison officer for industry at MIT uh, early, early in your career. You've done a lot of things. You are an MIT grad. I'm guessing technology is uh, dear to your heart. What is it that brought you then into reassuring? Because in the meantime, you've also worked in the machine tooling industry and done had a great career there. But what, what was it that brought you then back to the reshoring issue? There's two answers. First, the practical answer. I retired from the machine tool industry and was no longer employed there. So I could either go out and find another job running another company or doing reshoring, which is what I wanted to do and I could afford to do it. So I did that. And then the question is, why did I want to do reshoring rather than sit on a beach somewhere? The history, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey which is right across the river from New York. Biggest thing in town was Singer Sewing Machine. In its heyday, it was the biggest factory in the world. And my grandfather was a foreman. My dad ran about a third of the factory. I worked there summers. I drove past 10, 20 years ago and everything was gone. Nothing's made in the United States. And I, throughout my career, when I was selling machine tools and foundry equipment, industry after industry, company after company that I wanted to sell them to disappeared because they were wiped out by foreign competition. So I said, hmm, somebody's got to do something about this. And I said, well, I've got the time and the contacts and the skills. And so I've done it. And the organization you created is, is pretty impressive. So, and this was back in 2009, right? Yeah, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. You've been doing this for a while. Yes. And actually, it's been rewarding, and not, not financially, but psychologically. The year we started in 2010, 6,000 jobs were announced coming back. And last year, 2020, 160,000. And this year, we think it'll be over 200,000. You know, it's been as rewarding personally as, as I could hope. Well, let's get into the numbers. I'm glad to hear that because the influx of jobs, you know, may now roughly sort of balance the outflow, but the country has a big trade deficit, right? Around $500 million a year. So that means there's a lot of work to do still if the goal is total reshoring. You know, I'm curious, what would you say are the biggest drivers now of, of reshoring? 
several things. First, China is obviously a, a big piece of the offshoring problem, and Chinese wages have risen 10 to 15 percent a year for the last 20 years. So they've gone from almost so low you couldn't count them to being today maybe a third of the U.S. level, depending on the, what skill level portion you're talking about. And so it's gotten high enough that even before COVID, even before the trade war, work was flowing out of China. And the only question became, does it go to Vietnam, Cambodia, India, or, or to the United States? We try to get it to come here and we, with some success. Certainly COVID helped. The companies are much more aware of the risk of having everything coming from one location halfway around the world and all the things that can go wrong between there and here, as opposed to doing it close to where their assembly plant is or where the customer is. So that, that experience has helped. Also, companies have learned. There was an interesting study done by a professor, John Gray, at The Ohio State University, and he found four companies, mid-sized companies, that had offshored and, and reshored. And he asked them, why did you offshore? They said, the wages, the costs were so much lower. Well, why did you reshore? Well, after a couple of years of doing it, we found the experience of quality, delivery, communication, travel, uncertainty were all so high that those off, more than offset the cost saving. So there's been a, an education, a learning experience that the companies have gone through. And sometimes it takes a couple of years, sometimes a decade before they conclude, in some cases, not all, but in some cases, coming back here to produce or source is more profitable. Well, it's interesting because China is obviously an issue. And then generally, I don't know if you would agree, but we are arguably in the middle of a massive supply chain squeeze sort of crisis created perhaps by COVID and a bunch of other things as well with you know, a lot of goods waiting to dock in, in various shores, whether it is in the US or elsewhere. But before we get to sort of current affairs, could you define the issues around reshoring for us? Because I know there's pure play reshoring, but then in your argument, foreign direct investment is also a part of the picture. And then you have this notion of kept from offshoring. Can you explain what those three different terms and wh why are they interrelated? The simplest one is foreign direct investment. So a company that is headquartered outside the United States builds a factory and starts to produce in the United States, typically for the U.S. market or the North American market. Very clear, very simple definition. All you need to know is who owns the company. Now, reshoring, in contrast, is done by U.S. companies, say General Motors, as opposed to, say, Toyota. So done by a U.S. company, and the company produces or sources a product that previously was sourced offshore. So it had been offshored, now it's reshored. Now, literally the way we do it, it does not, not have to be the same product because it could be a later revision. It doesn't even have to be the same company. If GM came out with a new car that replaced a segment of the auto industry that had previously always been imported, then we would say that segment of the market had been reshored. It doesn't have to even go into their own factory because we, we believe half or more of what gets reshored is in the supply chain. It's in the machine shops and the foundries and the chemical plants and so on that are selling material to the eventual brand company. So that, that's reshoring. And then kept from offshoring is a company that said, we're thinking of moving to Mexico, China, what have you, and we 
did the math, we did lean, we did automation, we trained our employees, we did, you know, whatever, whatever, and we did not offshore. But yeah. when, when I, those numbers I gave you, the 6,000 going up to the 160 is just reshoring and FDI does not include the kept from offshoring. So I'm guessing then in kind of the Biden administration's push and, and other policy initiative to work on this issue, that there are different tools they can try to use to stimulate this. But presumably, since you have a, an interest group that works on this, you think that the government needs to work on this as well? Or, or is your efforts geared more directly towards the companies to convince them of, of making different decisions? Yeah, we're 90 or 95 percent towards doing the best we can despite what I call the tilted playing field. So despite the, the conditions that we have, it's do the best you can with what you've got and convince companies that it makes sense. In some cases, we'd say 20 or 30% of what they import to bring it back to the United States. So we, to get them to do the math, to figure that out. Then we put 10% of our effort into advocating to the government to take the tilt out of the playing field. And for that subject, we'd say the the overwhelming problem, the reason the companies offshored so much is that the manufacturing cost or the FOB price from offshore is typically 30% lower in China than the US and maybe 10 or 20% lower in Germany and Italy than the US. And that's an overwhelmingly, our surveys, other surveys say, that's why companies offshore because of price. And so can you get a lot more back without overcoming that problem? Eventually, no. And therefore, we advocate to the government to massively shift resources into the skilled workforce, to have an apprentice training system like Germany's or Switzerland's, to keep the corporate income tax rate low or take it lower rather than raising it, to get the dollar down by 20 or 30 percent. The dollar is a reserve currency which drives up the value of the dollar above what it would be if it were operating on a trade deficit balancing approach. But because we're the safe haven currency for storing value, money comes in, forces up the value of the dollar. Uh, we should probably have a value added tax like the other countries have. So some combination of those things, but always with skilled workforce, because if you don't have more and better, we can't do the job. The workforce is interesting because from what I've understood, like you said, Germany has a very strong strategy on building workforce skills. And I could just imagine we were going to talk about Industry 4.0. All of these new technologies rolling onto the manufacturing shop floor, even though some of the technologies are fairly simple and the usability is increasing, they do take a certain amount of skill to operate them and make use of them. Why is it that Europe has done a arguably better job in that domain? I'd say they always had the tradition of their trades and apprenticeship programs, which were developed from medieval times. So they had that tradition and the son following the father into the trade, eventually having his own shop. So they had the tradition of apprenticeship. We had some, certainly I think Ben Franklin started with one, I think. You know, so we had some apprentices, never as many, never as much. And then specifically around the Second World War, we had large quantities of immigrant tradesmen, toolmakers, welders, precision machinists, which supplied that need. So prevented us from further strengthening apprenticeship programs. And then 
sometime around then, 60s, 70s, the norm became that any high school student who could read and write and add two plus two to get five, <laughs> you know, anybody who, could, who was reasonably competent obviously should go to university. And so, you know, thousands of universities got set up. Guidance counselors guide students to the best university they can get in rather than the best career that they can have. So we nowhere near enough apprentices and way too many people going to university such that specifically at any point in time, about 30% of the people who have university degrees are in jobs that do not require a university degree, Starbucks kind of jobs. And so we put way too many people into that education and nowhere near enough into training. So are you saying less people should go to college? The U.S. can't afford that many people in college. It doesn't make any sense to have them take out $50,000 in loans and spend four years of their life. And in many cases, never achieve the incomes and job security that they would have if they'd gone into a trade. I met a, one of the senior managers from the Milwaukee Area Technical College, a good-sized technical college in Milwaukee, and he bragged about the fact that his institution was the second largest graduate school in Wisconsin, because only Madison had more people there who already had a bachelor's degree. So at this two-year technical college, they had thousands of people coming back with bachelor's degrees to get an associate degree in a technical field so they could actually go out and get a job. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good proof that there's too many university degrees. And, and, and so people, in effect, get started into the trade four years or six years late and hundreds of thousands of dollars of not earned income and of expenditure. So it's really clear to me we need to change the image in the United States and, and let people see that in many cases they're better off going into that trade right out of high school or in high school, and then perhaps letting the company subsidize them to go on and get the associate's degree in engineering or the bachelor's degree in engineering or the management degree. And that's what they do over in Europe. I've taken tours of apprentices to European companies to see the apprentice program and the senior management of the companies are ex-apprentices. They know the product, they know the process, they know the customer, they run the company. Yeah, but Harry, I guess this is just different models of capitalism, right? Because the laissez-faire sort of completely free version of capitalism where the employers sort of don't take that responsibility it is to take the long-term view, Europe has a different model, I guess. So what yeah. you're arguing is a complete shift really of thinking, shifting responsibility, over to employers very much. And I guess government stimulus programs towards industry to incentivize that. Isn't that really going counterculture here? Well, it's a big change. It's going to be a big change for the student to go into an apprenticeship instead of going on to university. It's going to be change for companies. I think companies understand the shortage they have. And I see them starting apprenticeship programs, doing the things they need to do. Not all, but, but many. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the technology angle. So all of these more advanced companies, so at the higher end of manufacturing, let's just speak about the state where I live now, Massachusetts. The state has kind of decided basically that high value manufacturing is, is kind of the only place they can compete. And thus you see, you know, electronics manufacturing, higher value components, that kind of thing. Is there anything in your model and the, the way you argue for the reshoring initiative about what kind of manufacturing you think is suited for the U.S.? Because for, for a long time, I guess even the government had given up those jobs that you want back. 
I mean, are you seeing that changing or, or would you say we have to at least start with high value, technologically based manufacturing? And, and by the way, I guess a lot of that's changing as well, because we were introducing technology at lower levels in the, in the organization as well now. So to a certain extent, everything is technology. So we, we've identified about a million jobs between reshoring and FDI that have been announced to come back. And when we, when we compare the mix, the technology mix of those jobs to the technology mix of overall US manufacturing, there's a bias towards higher tech. So either high tech or medium high tech, which might be automotive, for example. And there's relatively more of the electronics and you know, the high and the medium and relatively less of the low and medium low. Okay, so there's no question that the tendency is for higher tech. Why margins are better, perhaps uh, easier to automate, perhaps, which can deal with the higher wage levels. So yes, that that is what's happening, but there's still a lot of apparel and what most people would consider to be quite low tech product coming back. But there's a tendency in those cases to have a low tech product produced with high tech automation that enables the high wage rate worker to be competitive. Mm -hmm. So we'd say that you get some combination of high tech products and relatively advanced automation. So when I go on your website, reshorenow.org, I'm getting a very distinct impression that you're waging this battle with data. And I can understand the reasons why, but when you speak, I also hear a lot of this has to do with cultural change. And I was just sort of curious, if I were to ask you, what's your message to three different audiences that are relevant to this? Sort of number one, machine tool employers, the people that are presumably hiring massive amounts of people every year, and they get to choose, you know, year two, what do they do with them? And how do they support them? What is your message to employers in America today? What is their role in this sort of grand shift that you're arguing for? So I'd say to have their facility be as modern and clean and efficient as it can be, a place that if a high school kid and their mother came in to see it, they'd all agree this was a good place to work, to take a much longer term perspective on business. The U.S. companies of that type invest maybe half as much per year per employee as do German companies, for example, their equipment's older. So to invest more, to make the place a great place to work, to engage the employee, lean, training, you know, as opposed to here's a, here's a machine kid, use it to get them the best available training so that the worker gets a lot of satisfaction from it, but also to believe that this is a career they can follow and that they can get more and more training, work their way up and eventually achieve whatever they want, whether it's to be the best toolmaker or to eventually have their own toolmaking company, if that happens to suit them. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. What about Congress who are now faced with endorsing a lot of Biden administration's new infrastructure plans and a lot of the manufacturing specific initiatives that have been put on the table with billions of dollars? in some cases and certainly trillions trillions yeah for individual (laughs) programs billions of dollars but trillions total so what exactly is the charge there as a congressman from some state that feels that arguably they've been supporting manufacturing their whole life so what are they doing wrong yeah in our analysis the biden administration 
has some good actions. The Buy American decisions, perhaps some tax credits for moving work back, perhaps penalties for taking it abroad. They, they've committed to something like $50 billion, I think, in skilled workforce training, apprenticeship programs. You know, dealing with a lot of the issues that we think are important. Now, on the other hand, they have others that we think are, are wrong, like raising the corporate income tax rate, for example, will reduce the return on investment of domestic manufacturing. Overall, I describe what Biden's program is doing as applying tourniquets to a critically injured victim of some kind. And it's necessary to apply the tourniquet because the damage is so great, but they're not dealing with the underlying problem. And the underlying problem is, as I said before, manufacturing cost in the U.S. is too high. So my fear is that they'll, for example, subsidize these chip plants, you know, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars worth of subsidies for chips, probably necessary because we've fallen so far behind. We're not making enough. But if we dramatically increase our chip production and if we're not competitive enough to produce the automotive infotainment systems here and the servers and the laptops and other kinds of electronics here, then we won't have a a market for the chips that we're making. And we'll go from now being dependent on Taiwan and China for chips to being dependent on them to buy the chips that we make here to put into the products that they make there. And that doesn't make any sense. So in addition to doing what you have to do now with the chips and the rare earth minerals and EV batteries, deal with the underlying cause of it all, the reason that we're so weak in those areas, which is high manufacturing cost. Overcome that problem and the companies will take care of the rest. That makes a lot of sense. Now, if you're a high school student or their parent, what do you say to them? What's their challenge? You're sitting there in high school, you're on your way to your guidance counselor, or you're talking to your friends and you're thinking, what's going to be my career? You're, you're thinking maybe I'm actually doing well in school. Maybe I should go on, but you know, I'm practical. I know all these things, but I don't know. Right. So they have all these mixed messages. They actually have all the choices. Many of these students, right. They could go on to college and they actually have practical talent, but they're getting a lot of mixed messages right now. You know, is manufacturing the way to go? It's like Google or nothing for a high school student, you know, because Mm -hmm. they're faced with social media and everything. So it's high tech or nothing. The rhetoric is that way. So what is your message to that group? What should they be thinking? Why, Why can you argue that they're not just going to end up in a dirty, dangerous factory job and, uh, you know, have very short term job security and, and at the end of the day, not have a lifetime income that's going to match. Mm-hmm. How do you secure them? In terms of job security, certainly there was a period 10, 20, 30 years ago with lots of offshoring, factory closings, opioid problems, etc. But we're past that. The manufacturing employment has risen for 10 years in a row than is 20, 30, 40% higher than one would have predicted 20 years ago. We're definitely going against the trend because we're not offshoring anywhere near as much and we're reshoring and FDIing a lot more, which has been the reason the jobs have picked up. I think you can make clear that there's very good career opportunities. The other point is that I don't think they get a mixed message. I I think they get one myopic message, which is that the only way to succeed is to go to university. They get the million dollar more lifetime income versus a high school degree. You hear that all the time. There's a chart that I fight against, a bar chart you'll see on the Department of Labor, Department of Education websites that shows income going up with number of degrees. 
starts down here with no high school, eventually PhD, income goes up. And I've worked with them and I'm doing my best to convince them in that chart to also put the average income of people who've passed an apprenticeship. And if you insert that in the chart and show that that's about the same as a bachelor's degree, higher than liberal arts, a little bit lower than engineering, that the actual economic returns, especially if you allow for the fact that they're working as soon as they go into, say, an apprenticeship and they're not paying tuition to go to college, the net present value of the future cash flows is, I've calculated, substantially higher than, for example, for an English degree, although not quite as good as an engineer. As you're speaking, I'm reminded of another issue, which is different, right? 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't as easy to go back into college. You really just couldn't make that choice. You were viewed upon as pretty strange if you went back into college as an adult. That is actually not the case anymore. There's online colleges. There's actually plenty of ways to, to even go back as an adult and get other kinds of degrees. So it's not like a choice you're making when you're 18, never go to college. You could decide at 25 and say, or at 35 or, or at 55 and say, you know what? I have had a career, but now I'm going to go to college. No question. And, you know, I've got a, a BS and MS in engineering from MIT, and I'd be a much better engineer if I had spent four years in a tool-making apprenticeship program or a precision machining program, because I'd be much more practical of an engineer. I, I'd really know how things worked and went together, as opposed to just knowing the sort of the theory of everything. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for even if your goal is to be chief engineer at some company, to have started with that practical background. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a whole other vision about how you learn at the end of the day and what matters in, in life. So you're arguing the economic case, but it's also about quality of life. It's about choices. It's a much wider discussion, but it seems to me that if you're right, you know, one thing gets into the head of a guidance counselor, perhaps because of this uh, bombardment of one type of, of reasoning across society. So it's not really one source you're blaming for the problem here. There's a multitude of reasons why this is happening in the United States. Complex subject, but specifically, we need to stop pushing university as the right solution for almost everybody and instead show that the training is the right solution for most people. And then the only question is, do you get your university degree at the beginning, or do you get it sometime later if you want one? Yeah. But if you're really happy being a tool maker and you're making good money and you think you can wind up with everything you want in life, just keep going. <laughs> well, that's a very positive message because, I mean, I think you and I have probably together done way too much schooling. I never really liked to go to school. I liked to learn. I just didn't like to sit there. What you're depicting is a much more practical approach to learning. I mean, no one's saying that you shouldn't learn. It's the opposite, right? It's like learn as much as you can, but there are many ways to do it. And if employers allow you, you can learn a lot on the job, on the side, together with the job, what have you. I was wondering if you would uh, put on a little futurist hat and, and think about the next decade and see what what is happening to manufacturing? I mean, are you succeeding or are the forces on your side here with reshoring? Do you think the trend is going to unabatedly continue more and more reshoring or do you see any dangers on the horizon? Well, the biggest danger is the skilled workforce issue because even before COVID, for the last 10, 20 years, there have been shortages of tool makers, welders, precision machinists, et cetera. It's always been in short supply. I'd like to be bringing back 300,000 manufacturing jobs a year 
But if we did that, we'd have such shortages of workers that the system wouldn't be functional. So we need to sort of move in parallel, bring the work back, showing that the work is coming back so that the students and the guidance counselor feel confident in a manufacturing career, and at the same time, increasing the number of workers that are getting trained to be able to do the work that's coming back. So you need, you need to move these two things together. And if, if we do that successfully, then again, my goal is to bring 5 million manufacturing jobs back, which is what it would take to balance trade, have exports equal imports, increase manufacturing by 40%. But to, to bring those 5 million back, even in the most optimistic view, is a 20-year process, mainly because of the time to change society, cultural attitudes, recruit the kids, get them trained. You can buy equipment in a year. You can build a factory in six months or a year. But to get 5 million additional people to get the training for manufacturing, that's a, that's hard. So it's a long project you've set yourself. Yep. Do you so, have any allies in this process? Are there a lot of folks now arguing for reshoring? There are others that want manufacturing to come to the U.S. They might not call it reshore, and they just say we want more U.S. manufacturing. So Coalition for a Prosperous America, Alliance for American Manufacturing, the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, the AMT, the Machine Tool Builders Association, the ones that put on IMTS, the big machine tool show, SME, Society of Manufacturing Engineers. They, they all want exactly what we want. So some of them would say, let's just do things right and manufacturing will grow. And we say, yeah, but it's only going to grow faster than the economy. It's only going to increase manufacturing share of employment if we reshore and do FDI or export more. And it's a lot easier to reshore where we can control the market and adapt to the market than it is to export more where we have to convince people in another country to buy our stuff instead of their stuff. It's easier to win on your own home field. Overall, I'm delighted that things have done so well. And with a little help from the government, I might see the 5 million while I'm still around to to watch it. (laughs) So, Harry, lastly, I like to challenge you. But if you were a true globalist, you would really just look at the last 30 years and you would actually celebrate because for whatever reason, the U.S. has actually subsidized the growth of emerging markets at the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. And you could argue, you know, China's one thing. But all of these other smaller Southeast Asian nations and maybe even other countries have benefited from this and they have greatly grown their GDP and they have educated their societies. What's, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with it. I say the, the exception is that the U.S. is significantly the country that suffered from that process. Now, if you compare us to Germany with a big trade surplus, and manufacturing being 20, 24% of their workforce as opposed to 9 or 10% here. Now, Germany has won in that because they've managed to have the exports and not a lot of imports, and we have not much exports and a lot of imports. So we have been singled out in some ways. I, For example, if you look at China, their trade surplus with the U.S. is about equal to their trade surplus with the world. So it's almost as if they intentionally focused on us to be the source of all that money that came in to to make things happen. And they have not applied their exporting efforts as successfully, and I'd say probably not as aggressively, to Europe and to the rest of Asia and so on. We bear the burden of being the 
self-imposed policemen of the world, you know, for better or worse, and being the country that has pulled all those smaller, poorer countries out of poverty into a more increasingly middle-class condition. And that's resulted in the opioid problems in the inner city, the loss of manufacturing jobs here. How long can we continue to accept that decline and still survive in anything like the nation that we are? I'd say not much longer, and therefore something has to be done. For example, in China, their average worker saves something like 30 or 40% of their salary. Our workers save 5% or something like that. Yeah. So if China would convince their own citizens to consume more and save less, then the huge excesses that they ship to us, the Chinese could consume on their own, and then we could produce the stuff that we need for ourselves. So there's, I think there's other ways to slice the pie that can achieve the global good that you're describing and the re-strengthening of the U.S. economy, and we can have a happy ending for everyone. Yeah, well, I would want to believe that. But, you know, you're speaking about, to some extent, the decline and perhaps in some people's eyes, the failure of, of the current American model that has been kind of the post-war model or the natural end, perhaps, of, a, of an economic cycle, whatever language you want to apply to it. But there's two things that sort of stand out to me, though. It is the emphasis on quality work, right? Because more and more with these technologies, precision is expected. And number two, hard work, right? Those were values at some point that were really big sources of pride in kind of the earlier version of the American industrialization and the American experiment. Don't we need to start you know, on a more basic level than just sort of tactics and, you know, moving people, you know, encouraging them to do skills? Is there not a, a much more fundamental work that would have to be carried out for this to be realistic? Because if you if you look at it, it's not just perhaps the prices that are more convenient in, like you said, in China. It's also the quality, both in China and in Germany, certainly, that has been attractive. Otherwise, you know, the U.S. wouldn't have been buying their services. So if it is as complicated as that, how can it be fixed? Well, overwhelmingly, companies import because of price. Yeah. We've surveyed them and done it with like Plant Moran, big accounting company. Overwhelmingly, the reason is price. Maybe five percent of its quality, and in, in very select, you know, items and such. But overwhelmingly, the companies purchased abroad because of price. The U.S. did lose its way, what forty, fifty years ago on quality, automotive industry, etc. But it's it's come back rather nicely with Lean and Deming and all these people here. So I, I think U.S. quality overall is certainly as good as China's on average, and maybe just a snitch behind Germany and Switzerland. But I, I do agree with you that Americans, and you didn't quite say it, but I'll say it. I'd say too many Americans have gotten lazy or sloppy or no longer appreciate the value of hard work, the psychological value of hard work, what that does for them. I always say we need to get people to work harder, work smarter, save more, spend less, and the country will be in a better place. But that's a, that's a major change. I mean, it's easier to fight for reshoring than for people spending less at, at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all of this is just testament to the complicated sort of forces that are underlying uh, you know, economics. But uh, Harry, I, I thank you so much for going through the reshoring argument and for being willing to dig a little deeper too, because... I think so often in these discussions, it either is just a policy discussion. It's like, 
assume that you can just make a little tweak and it would all be fine. But as we have explored, it, it's a complicated topic. And thanks a lot for engaging and, and best of luck with your passion. Thank you, Tron. I very much enjoyed what we've accomplished and what the country has and, and appreciate the chance to chat with you and explore the subject. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 60 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trunarne Unheim. The topic was reshoring. Our guest was Harry C. Moser, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative. In this conversation, we talked about what reshoring is, why it is important now, what data there is on it, what the reshoring initiative is, and what the future holds for manufacturing. My takeaway is that reshoring remains a controversial topic. Whilst the effects may be positive initially, what does it mean for the cost and quality of existing supply chains? Is it even realistic to reshore big chunks of a globalized value chain? There are many questions, but the projections are alluring and domestically in most traditional mass manufacturing states, it remains a popular topic and one would think the sustainability effects of more localized production would be a good thing. What's clear is that every nation, and particularly the US, depends on an educated workforce to be competitive. The real question might be, what does it take to create a more competitive world where opportunity exists on every shore? If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 50, The Last Mile of Productivity, episode 49, Lean Manufacturing in the USA, or episode 18, Transforming Foundational Industries. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us because we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the connected frontline operation platform that connects the people, machines, the devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to op- uh, operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Industrial conversations that matter.